Thanks to the drama team for giving us a little recap of last week when we uh, looked at the announcement of Gabriel coming to Mary. And today we're going to pick up on Mary's response to that in a passage that's called Mary's Song. Listen to what the scripture says, Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost hearts, or inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through these passages leading up to the birth of Christ, they are just so beautiful, so rich. And Father, we thank you for this word that was recorded for our benefit to give us this glimpse of how you were preparing the world for the birth of your son and how you chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Father, may we learn from her example today and may we be encouraged by what you are doing in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I enjoy about the Christmas season is the music. I've been listening to Christmas music in my car as I drive. I enjoy the concerts or programs. I'm looking forward to hearing the children next week. And I think about um, just all of the different music that we have. Uh, there are great Christmas songs, both secular and spiritual. Uh, some of those favorites may be songs like, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. I think that's going to happen this year or Walking in a Winter Wonderland. Uh, we also think of those great sacred hymns, though like joy to the world. O come all ye faithful, hark the herald angels sing, silent night, or O holy night. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a tradition in your family of singing Christmas carols together, or do you like to just have the lights low and play some Christmas music in the background and enjoy it? You know, when we think about Christmas, music is such a part of that. There is joy, there's music. And I wondered, have you ever wondered where that started or where that came from? Well, one of the interesting things to me is to note that there are four songs that Luke records for us in these first two chapters of his gospel. Four songs in these first two chapters leading up to what we call Christmas. The first song is Mary's song. It's what we're going to look at today. It's been called the Magnificat from the Latin word for magnify. Uh, and it is found in the passage that I just read for you. But the second song, a little bit later, is Zachariah's song. His blessing, his benedictus, it was called, that's found in Luke 1, 
to 79. The third song is the song of the angels, where they come and make that announcement, glory to God in the highest. And then the fourth song that we see in these chapters is Simeon's song. It's when he meets baby Jesus in the temple and he says, Lord, let thy servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. And I think about that. You know, we don't have the musical notes that went with these songs, but they are songs that are written that celebrate the birth of Christ, that make this announcement of his coming, that give glory to God in the highest for the favor that he has shown toward men. When we look closely at Mary's song, there are some things that stand out from it. For one thing, this passage is saturated with Scripture. One of the commentators noted that there are 12 different Old Testament passages that are reflected here line by line. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, you could go and you could take a look at all those cross-references. You could see where she is quoting from in the Psalms or in the other Old Testament books that she refers to. Mary's song seems to be modeled on Hannah's song. Remember, Hannah was a woman who was also barren. But whereas Hannah's song celebrates, in a sense, her victory over her enemies, remember how she was provoked and and, uh, looked down upon because she was barren? Mary's song instead celebrates God's favor. She understands what God is going to do, and she blesses God for the favor that he has shown to her and to all mankind. This song also shows Mary's deep piety and knowledge of the scriptures. And I'm thinking about that as here as she is this young woman, somewhere between the ages of 12 to 14, we believe. And yet she has this deep knowledge of scripture. She's memorized the word of God. She has hid it in her heart and it flows out of her. These are qualities that would make her a good choice to be the mother of Jesus. And finally, her song reveals a God who vindicates the downtrodden. He looks upon his children, his people with favor. And even though there are times in this world where it may look like things are upside down from the way it should be, God is a God who is at work and who will vindicate his people. One of the questions that commentators and theologians have had is they wonder, did Mary write it or did Luke? I mean, if Mary was indeed illiterate, how could she compose this song? And most believe that she did write it. And that she may have written it even as she was reflecting on what God was about to do as she traveled to see Zachariah and Elizabeth. You know, and I think about that. I think about her ability to compose this even if she was illiterate. I think that's very possible. Uh, This past year when I had the opportunity to go to Peru and I was meeting with some of these tribal people that have come to know Christ, uh, people who live in the Amazon area, and I think about the orality training that is going on among them. They are taught the scriptures and these leaders are asked to memorize 30 stories from the Old Testament and then be able to teach that or share that and they can do that word for word. 
and then memorize 30 stories from the gospel, and they are able to do that and to share it and to share it again word for word. And what the trainers have discovered is that these people, because it is an oral culture, have really developed their ability to memorize, to hear stories, to be able to tell stories and do that. And it is surprising what you can do when life is more simple and focused on those things. I think with all of our technology today and all the things that are sent at us with, you know, computers or we have our phones and we're checking things and we get messages on Twitter or Facebook or other things, I think sadly there are times when we're becoming more a generation of skimmers and we pick up bits and pieces. But I look at these cultures where it was more of an oral tradition that was passed down and they memorize fewer things, but they think deeply about them. And we see that in Mary. In Mary's song, she is going to praise God for four things that he had done. And first of all, Mary praises him for God's personal favor to her. This would like be writing a song to thank God for answer to prayer that you have seen, or to thank God for the blessing that he has shown in your life. And so she begins, my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. To glorify God means to magnify or to make him large, to enlarge him. And you think about that. I mean, wait a minute. How can we do that? How how can we enlarge God? Is that even possible? Well, think of it like this. It is like going out in an evening where you see a beautiful sunset and you look at that sunset and you look at all the colors in the sky and you are filled with praise and you just thank God for the beauty of his creation or you feel that way when you look at the mountains and the majestic peaks that are there rising above you or you think about it even when you see a beautiful work of art If you're looking at a Rembrandt and you look at the way that he used light and the color and you see the way that he painted those faces so realistic, so distinctive, and you stand in amazement and you want to share that feeling with others, we can't make God bigger, but we can make him known to more people. And the better we get to know him, the bigger he becomes to us. My soul glorifies the Lord. Mary's heart is bursting with joy and amazement at what God has done. Her spirit rejoices in him. She recognizes the extraordinary favor that God has shown to her that she should be the mother of Jesus. Mary rejoices in God, her Savior. Did you catch that? She calls him her Savior. It is an indication that she doesn't see herself as free from sin. It speaks against that doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary because only sinners need a Savior. And Mary recognizes what God is doing. He has been mindful of her humble state, and not just hers, but Israel's too. And by humble state, when that phrase is used here, it implies our inability to change our situation. 
We are in a place where we need help from someone else to change us. And God has entered into our world to rescue us. You know, I think about that. Our humble state, our inability to change our circumstances. All of us have times in our life when we feel that way. And where do we look? We look to God to help us. I think of the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey gets in trouble. He gets in trouble because a deposit is lost through no fault of his own, and yet he's the one who is responsible for it. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't have that kind of money to make up what has been lost, and he thinks about ending his own life. And what does God do? God sends an angel in that story to rescue him, a humorous angel named Clarence who comes and who actually ends up, as you know, jumping into that river so that George would rescue him. As the story is told, you see also how his wife, George's wife, is at work to contact neighbors and friends, people that George had helped all through his life in that town of Bedford Falls. And what happens at the end is how everybody comes together, working together to rescue George in this situation. Mary praises God, not only for his personal favor to her, but for his plan of salvation as he is about to send his son into the world to be our Savior. Mary praises God, secondly, for his attributes, for his character. And we see that in verses 49 and 50. In particular, she's going to focus on three of God's attributes. She praises him for his power. She calls God the mighty one who has done great things for me. God is a God who does the impossible. Think about what God did for Zechariah and Elizabeth. A barren woman having a child in her old age. It was impossible what God was doing in their life. And what he did for Mary was also impossible. A virgin birth, that this child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then you think about Jesus. What God did in Jesus' life to benefit others, the miracles that he performed in his earthly ministry were impossible. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised to life. Astounding miracles that Jesus performed so that they would recognize that he was the Messiah. For nothing is impossible with God. One man put it like this when he thought about Jesus' entry into our world. He said, you know, the life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered the world through one door that was marked no entrance, and he left through another door that was marked no exit. Nobody had ever done that before. To be born in such a fashion as Jesus did by the power of God and to be raised to life by his own power, and he now sits at our Father's right hand in heaven. 
Mary praised God for his holiness. She cries out, holy is his name. And in scripture, the name of someone stands for their whole person, for all that they are. Their name stands for their character, their conduct. And so what she is saying here is that everything about God is holy. Everything God does is holy. He is righteous and perfect in all his ways. In his plan, we stand in amazement at what he is about to do. But God is good, and he is about to change the world. She praises God for his mercy. She understands that we don't deserve it. His favor has been graciously shown to her, and it has been shown to others. And God's mercy extends to those who fear him, both Jew and Gentile. One of the things that we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke is that the Gospel, again, is for all people. It begins with the angel's announcement, but you see it in the examples that Luke will use. We see it especially in the book of Acts that he has written as the Gospel will go to new people groups. And you will find Cornelius the centurion who is a God-fearer. You'll find Lydia of Thyatira who is a God-fearer. And these are individuals where God has been at work in their heart and they are seeking him. Who are the God-fearers? God-fearers are people who seek him and who recognize their need for a savior. And we see that today as well. You know, there are people who just, by the grace of God, have this sense that there has to be more to this life. They look at what's going on in their world, and they understand the struggles, and they believe that there has to be an answer. There has to be something more. And at just the right time, God comes to them just like he came to you and me, and he opens our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. We recognize who Jesus is. We see our sinfulness. We know our need for a Savior. And we turn to him. And God forgives us of our sins. He opens our eyes to see who his son really is. God's doing that all the time. The white roses that we have up here today are an indication of that too, how at just the right time in a conversation, in an opportunity to present the gospel, God is preparing hearts. And you may be one of those voices along the way that's planting the seeds and that is part of what God's doing, or you may be the one that gets to reap the fruit at just the right time. Thirdly, Mary praises him for God's justice. And we see that in verses 51 to 53. And in particular, Mary is looking forward to what God is going to do through the coming of the Messiah. You know, this news of a Messiah entering into the world is something that the Jews had been looking for for centuries. What's interesting to me, too, is that in this second half of her song, in verses 51 to 55, all of these statements are made in the past tense. She says that God has performed mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And she makes these statements as though it's already done. You know, it's interesting. That is a feature of prophetic uh, work. The Old Testament prophets many times too would do the very same thing. They would speak of God's present action or future action as though it was already done. Because in the mind of God, it is. And that's very interesting. Mary is talking about this great reversal that exists already in our world, but will come in the future in all of its fullness. God does turn the tables around. And we see that in our world. God does scatter the proud, and he does bring down rulers and those who are proud, and he lifts up the humble. You can think of world history, and you can think of those proud and boastful rulers of old, like Nebuchadnezzar. We read his story in Daniel 4. A man who looked at everything that he had built in this great empire of Babylon. And he looked at the beauty of his palaces and the hanging gardens that he had had constructed, one of these ancient wonders, or one of these seven wonders of the ancient world. And he looked at that and he boasted about what he had done by his might and power. And we read there how God confronted him. And because of his pride and refusing to give glory to God, was humbled by God and for seven years lived like an animal in the wild. You can go through human history and read about Alexander the Great, the Roman Caesars, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, all brought down in their time. All their kingdoms came to an end. But this king who is about to enter the world, King Jesus, his reign will never end. He will sit upon the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forevermore. We see it in part in this world, this reversal, but we will see it in its fullness when Jesus Christ returns. He tells us that God has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away hungry. When he is talking about the poor or the hungry or the needy here, he's talking about those who are spiritually poor. It is the humble poor that God lifts up. It's not a matter of dollars. It's a matter of the heart. And the same is true of those who are rich. It's not a matter of how much money a person has, but it's a matter of our heart toward God. And as he's talking about the rich here, those who think they are rich are those who think that they have no need for God. I don't need them. I can take care of things on my own. And they boast about their own success or their own wealth. And they will be sent away empty. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's those who are poor in spirit who will be lifted up and inherit the earth. It's why C.S. Lewis said that no one goes to heaven who really doesn't want to be there, and no one goes to hell 
who hasn't chosen it all along. In that final day, it's not the proud, it's not the mighty, it's not the rich who will have the last word. God does. And God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And fourth, we read here where Mary praises God for his faithfulness. And we see that in verses 54 to 56. That God is the faithful God who keeps his promises. God remembers his covenant that he has made to Israel, to Abraham, to his descendants forever. God gave a promise to Abraham that through his seed all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And we read that in Genesis 12, this wonderful promise that was given to him before he even had an heir. Before he had a land or a possession or anything, God said to him, Abraham, I'm going to use you, and through you, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. You know, last Wednesday night, Pastor Jason, in his apologetics class on Christmas, traced the line, starting with God's promise of a Messiah in Genesis 3. And he talked about how there were three people groups on earth, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and how God chose the line of Shem through whom the Messiah would come. Two-thirds of the world's people are not in that group as he begins to narrow it down. And then he'll go to Abraham. It's going to be in this particular line that God is going to send his Messiah. And then Abraham will have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And it is Isaac, this child of promise, through whom the Messiah will come, not through Ishmael. And it's divided again. And then Isaac will have the two sons, Esau and Jacob. And it's not Esau who is chosen, it's Jacob. And Jacob will have 12 sons, and it will be one of those sons, Judah, through whom the Messiah will come. And the line narrows and narrows and narrows, and it keeps going down like that. Through the centuries, as God pointed toward the coming of this child, and he tells us not only which line he will come through, he tells us where he will be born in Bethlehem, and he tells us when it will occur in the prophecy in Daniel that Pastor Jason walked through as well, the prophecy of 70 weeks that would be given to Israel and how 69 weeks would pass. And if you go from the decree that was made at the time of Daniel to the time of Christ, Jason showed how it comes out to 26 AD, that the Messiah would come and be announced and his ministry would begin after that time. It's amazing. It's there in the scripture as these details point toward the person of Jesus Christ. And Mary is saying that God has remembered his promise. He has remembered his covenant to Abraham and his descendants, even as he said to our fathers. Mary understands that the Messiah is about to enter the world and she has the privilege to bear this child. Luke will stay with Elizabeth, I mean, excuse me, Luke tells us that Mary will stay with Elizabeth for about three months and then return home. And can you imagine what those conversations were like in those days? It must have been a huge encouragement to Mary 
to have Elizabeth understand what was happening, to be bearing her own child who would be this forerunner of the Lord. I mean, no one would understand like Elizabeth would what was going on in Mary's life at this point. And Mary would return home. Luke doesn't tell us if she stayed to witness the birth of John. It seems from the location of this verse that she left shortly before John was born. And she returned to her own home where the baby Jesus would continue to grow in her womb. Mary is a great example of a woman who loved God and who thought deeply about his word. She had hidden it in her heart and it spilled over in worship and praise. It just flowed out of her naturally. And I think about that. If you were to write a song of praise to God, what would be on your list? That'd be a good exercise. If some of you are inclined to poetry or to music, to be able to compose a song that would praise God for his blessing in your life. May we, like Mary, praise God for his personal favor to us to think about and give him thanks for the answers to prayer that you have seen recently and in this past year, or to think about the way that God has blessed you by the people he has brought into your life or by the way that he brought you to the knowledge of the Savior. May we, like Mary, praise him for his character, his attributes, his power, his holiness, his mercy, the things that have stood out as we think about God and his work in our life. May we praise him for his justice, that this world will not continue as it is forever, that one day sin will be gone, that his people will be lifted up, and we will spend eternity with him in his presence. And may we praise God for his faithfulness, a God who keeps his promise and who does exactly what he has said. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Mary and for her example of faith and obedience. I thank you for her deep love for you and her knowledge of the scriptures, and I think all of us should be challenged by that, to be a people who memorize your word, who meditate on it, who bring it to mind and think about it during the course of our day or our work. Father, may we be a people who find strength in you and in your word. And I pray that as we go through this season that you would continue to open up doors for us to make your name great, to make you known and to magnify the Lord. God, may we do that in our worship, may we do it in our prayer, and may we do it in our conversation. In Jesus' name, amen.